As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. And today, it is an honor and privilege to be in conversation with someone I consider a teacher. And I'm not even exaggerating when I say in many ways, I owe my attachment to the, to the religion of Islam to our guest today. Ahlan wa sahlan. Welcome, Sheikh Dr. Khalid Abu Al-Fadl. How are you? Alhamdulillah, very nice to be with you. I'm very happy to to have this conversation. I am extremely honored and it's a first for us to have you on the Malcolm Effect. So we're going to go straight into it, Sheikh. I guess for our audience, given what you're doing now, describe to us, tell us, what is the project of Sheikh Khalid right now? That's a, <laughs> that's a very big question. Well, the the most recent thing that I have dedicated last two years was uh, a tafsir of the Quran. It's, it's, it's more a personal commentary on the Quran. And then, alhamdulillah, we've now covered in this, what we call the Illum project. We've covered uh, 99 surahs. So within the methodology of this project, uh, we've covered 99 surahs. And so inshallah we're approaching the the completion of this project but the what i have over many years of research become thoroughly convinced of that each surah in the quran has a thematic unity to it that there is a point to each surah as a cohesive chapter and mm-hmm. the message is often connected to historical unfoldings at the time of the prophet but but at the same time that the what the quran is saying is a moral commentary that is that projects into the future in other words it sort of provides a, a moral exemplar for human beings to study and to reflect on and to extract lessons from. And most critically is that the, the entire Quran, the entire Salat al-Mustaqim is a moral path. That the, the, the Quran from A to Z, from the very first Meccan revelations to the last, very last Medinian revelation, uh, is constantly engaged in a project of moral elevation of the human being to to get human beings to think in ethical terms about the challenges before them and it's that's easier said than demonstrated and so the entire project was to go surah by surah and to demonstrate how that is to thoroughly discuss the context of each surah to thoroughly discuss what the surah aimed to say and the various rhetorical movements within the body of a surah and to demonstrate what was the ethical moral point that thought to elevate human beings at the time 
And alhamdulillah, I mean, of course, because it is not the regular rhetoric and because it, it um, while we, I don't have thousands upon thousands of followers, but the reaction we've been receiving from all over the world has been astounding. People who feel that they've been reborn with this commentary. I mean, my entire, you know, it, it fits in with an intellectual trajectory that I have taken in throughout this life. I, Islam without the Quran does, it makes no sense to me. The Quran is the central moral code. It, it is the repository, the divine voice in our midst. It's a repository of the, of the divine presence in our midst. And my, you know, my entire intellectual project has been an exploration of, you know, when, when, when Allah ta- tells human beings that Allah seeks to take them out of darkness to light, I take that very seriously, and I take that very literally. But that then begs the question, what is darkness and what is light? And in what ways is it a, a journey from darkness to light? Not 1,400 years ago, not 600 years ago, but today. How can the Islamic message be a journey from darkness to light? And, and this is the, the constant compulsion, the constant impulse that that motivates me. And thank you so much for that answer, because I often say, unfortunately, people somehow believe that we must merely import a medieval understanding of Islam or, or of Quran and just transfix it in that time and just import it into modern day. So I really do appreciate this project of making the Quran, which is a living book, because I've often said, and this is my belief, that if, the, if my belief is that the Quran is the final word of God, from the time it was revealed, it's meant to be relevant until the end of times, then it must mm. make sense and it must be legible in every time we find ourselves in. So I really do appreciate this project. I guess when thinking about your approach, and this is something I get and I'm sure you get this, people often say, but why is it you are coming with something new? Or why is it what we've been taught in our seminaries is against this? Why is it all these other scholars have a different view to or different approach or come to different conclusions? What would you say to that? Well, I mean, there's several facets to this. One is that I often find that the the same people who are saying this, they, they actually do not know. They don't bother actually engaging what the details of what I'm saying, because if they actually invested the time to uh, to listen before condemning something, they would discover that what that I provide a consistent commentary on the conclusions of the past. I mean, what, what, what some of my, it is basic to my methodology is to always acknowledge uh, the conclusions reached about the Quran or the conclusions reached about Hadith or the conclusions reached about Sharia by uh, my predecessors and to explain their point of view and then to politely explain where I disagree or quite often, not even where I disagree, but how the approach, the approach I'm taking is underscoring 
a different emphasis, a different angle. So it, it actually, what what I end up clashing with in in sort of the the tradition is is um, not as uh, as great as people who have no idea what I'm actually saying claim it is. But then there's a, there's another point, and that is quite critical. It is basic. If if the point is preservation of knowledge and the rearticulation of well received knowledge, you don't need intellects to do that. I mean, you can nowadays you can pretty much rely on artificial intelligence to reproduce and re and just regurgitate what already exists, and we have the ability to to accomplish that through artificial intelligence. The the very point of the educational process, and I think this is something Muslims have lost along the way somehow. When you when someone is at a university, someone is studying to to get a master's or get a doctorate, when they write a paper, if they are not saying something new, then you tell them this is a merely descriptive paper and that is insufficient for the intellectual project. You must always, in engaging the subject, be able to point to your original contribution. The, the educational process of the entire world, and I think of the Islamic past as well, celebrates originality. The, and the, always the challenge when it comes to students is that if you are merely a, a parrot, then we tell the student you, are, you don't have much value as a scholar. In fact, it's probably a good idea if you find another profession because you have nothing original to say. But it, somehow, through our apologetic, defensive, reflexive reaction to colonialism, uh, our entire focus became to preserve, not to contribute. And this is disastrous because, as you said, if, if God has, if God's voice is sociologically and anthropologically incongruent, if what God has to say consistently clashes with the evolving human epistemological consciousness, because human beings, the way the mind worked, even just 100 years ago, is very different from the way the mind works today. Even just you, average person, when they watch a movie that was made in the 1960s, a lot of the reactions and speech patterns and uh, uh, th- thinking processes of the characters in the movie strike the audience 20 years later, 30 years later as odd and as artificial. And it's because their epistemology, their consciousness works different than the consciousness of people who were in the movie just in the 1960s or 1970s. That is the nature of of human systems of knowledge. We, we, our psyches evolve, our consciousness evolves, our comprehensions evolves, our perceptions evolve, the way our subjectivities evolve, the way we construct reality, the way we understand reality, the way we prioritize elements in reality. And so the only way God's voice can continue being pertinent and relevant is by the loyal, dedicated, committed, sincere efforts of the people of God, Hezbollah. But Hezbollah has to be constantly committed 
to originality. Originality is not newness for newness sake, but in always thinking in terms of the actual challenges that meet human beings in, in, in every time period and what the eternal and immutable and primordial voice of the divine has to say. And at and what I claim in 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 the Project Ulum and what I did with the Quran is to precisely illustrate why the Quran, if you if any law is simply a part of a moral project. The point is the moral project. The point is not the law. If you even the parts of the law where Allah expects us to obey. The, the strict ibadat, like for instance, why salah is four rakahs and why why asr is four rakahs and maghrib is three rakahs. There is a point to understand about divine space, divine time, divine boundaries, and it, it feel, fits within a rational ethical project that truly gives meaning to the expression from darkness to light. And that fully explores what light means, not 1,400 years ago, but what light, the project of always internalizing luminosity, uh, how is that, what does that mean at an ethical plane, at a, at a moral level? So, I mean, I'm, I've always, um, I'm a, it's very, you know, it's amazing that we have turned our religion into, into a, a servant of our identity needs, simply and strictly. You know, whatever affirms our insecurities and anxieties about our own identity and allows us to feel culturally different and and the pretense, the lie of being culturally superior. And in order to maintain this, this artificial construct, in order to feel culturally superior, we have to eliminate all real challenges in terms of truly moral challenges. So we construct these highly artificial environments in our Islamic centers, our Islamic schools, our so-called Islamic universities, in which we just talk to each other. And we we engage in this sort of pietistic rituals and pietistic displays and pietistic theater vis-a-vis one another. While the, while the, the world is around us, the discourses around us in the world. I mean, let me give you just a very quick example. Uh, recently, I, I was asked to teach uh, legal philosophy at the law school, at UCLA Law School. Uh, they asked me to teach a course on legal philosophy. And then one of my colleagues contacted me and said, you know, I think it would be such a treat if you teach a course comparing modern legal philosophy to Islamic legal philosophy. I, I'm, I would even audit this course. And I didn't say anything because inside of me, I knew I'm comparing what? I mean, there have been no advances in Islamic legal philosophy for centuries. So while if you compare modern legal philosophy, you can point to 10 different schools of thought about what law what law is what law does what, what law should do and and you can get to great degrees of intellectual sophistication about the function of law and the purpose of law when it comes to the islamic arena the 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 only thing you have to compare with is something that is medieval you know you can that compares well with other medieval legal systems but 
that does not compare at all. It, it has no means of even engaging modern legal thought. Now, I'm very well acquainted with Jewish legal thought, and sadly, I can tell you that I can teach a course on modern legal thought in comparison with modern Jewish legal thought. And that saddens me. That saddens me to no end. I mean, why have the, the followers of the Jewish tradition been are educated enough, they have enough academics and in true legal philosophers that have rethought this, the Jewish legal tradition in light of the epistemology of modern legal thought. And so they present not just a rival, but a very respectable contrib- contributor, contributor. Something that is very plausible, presents very plausible alternatives, let's say, uh, anchored in Jew- the Jewish identity and Jewish morality. Not so when it comes to Islam, because the minute you try to articulate any serious legal, original legal thought in Islam, you have the intellectual hyenas uh, nipping at you left and right, de- uh, delegitimating you left and right putting you down in every possible way. And that's death. I mean, what doesn't grow dies. That's that's Allah's sunnah in, in creation. If what doesn't move, what doesn't evolve, what doesn't adapt, dies. That's Allah's sunnah. It's not Darwin's sunnah. That's Allah's sunnah. And so we we it's like we, we don't move, we don't evolve, we don't adapt. And you see the death in the lack of seriousness uh, by which we take our uh, tradition generally, in the huge number of Muslims that leave the faith, you know, young kids and youth that grow up and say, oh, my parents are Muslim, in the lack of pride and lack of and this general sense of, you see it all over, this, this defensiveness and, and insecurity about our own tradition, which is just endlessly sad. And it all goes back to that thing that you identify, the, the way we, we fight originality and creativity. Abs- absolutely. And something I've been consistently, um, one of the reasons why I've been consistently drawn to your work is, as you mentioned several times, this fidelity to morality and ethics and social justice is something that continuously moves me when I watch your khutbas. I remember watching one of your khutbas, you won the the few people at the member to speak about settler colonialism, to speak mm-hmm. about colonialism, to speak about capitalism and all of, and especially in a time, and this leads me on to my next point, especially in a time where all too often mainstream Muslim scholars in the West have embedded themselves into a cultural war, which I argue has nothing to do with us in many ways, but have decided that when it comes to balance of odds, we are better suited with with aligning ourselves with the right wing, right wing Mm. conservatism, as if to say Islam is morally and ethically aligned with right wing conservatism and reactionaries. And again, again, straight up, me as a black person, I find that horrendous i can't and again it's like do i leave my blackness at the door and embrace what is a moral ethical injunction because because now i had someone say to me at least on the right the violence on the right is only physical where the left is ideological and it affects your hereafter and i thought isn't what <laughs> doesn't white supremacy also affect your hereafter 
I really couldn't yeah. believe it. So I wanted yeah. to kind of like, can we can, can we unpack this together? Like, what do you think of those who say Islam is inherently right wing conservatives conservatism? It is exactly if people understood how deeply this cuts and how destructive this is. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, once upon a time, we had something called the Wahhabi movement emerge from Najd and yeah. threaten to undertake all of Arabia and extinguish all form of nativist Islam that had emerged through centuries of practice. All the different Sufi groups, all the different reason-based groups, all yeah. you know, and, and considered everything her- heretical. Now, here's the thing. Because the fact that the Wahhabis raised the banner, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, because they would pray their five prayers, Jama'ah, because they covered up women and locked them up at home, the British colonialism saw this as a more authentic articulation of Islam than Turkish Islam, Egyptian Islam, all the Islams of Asia, all the Indian Islam. If you look at the annals of British colonialism, I have this, this, this entire archive of British intelligence correspondence about Wahhabi Islam. And consistently and persistently, they say that, well, the Wahhabis are, they are embodiment of the, the real Islam, not, not this Turkish Islam, which is in their mind, not, not a real Islam. Now, instead of paying attention to why colonialism is embracing this uh, austere and frequently immoral form of Islam, this is the the Islam that went up to Karbala and and slaughtered uh, thousands of worshippers, and it didn't bother British colonialism at all. This is the Islam that executed a countless number of Muslim shiuch. Hanafis and Malikis because they all deemed them kuffar and it didn't bother British colonialism at all. And what is really sad is that we fell in the trap and even people that as as respectable as Rashid Rada looked at the pietistic displays of Wahhabism and decided to side with them rather than the moral substance, the idea that they have no regard for the the value of human life or human liberty or human dignity or human rights. And we are still suffering till today the consequences of that. Sadly, we've learned nothing from history. That, That is what is truly devastating. Now, you have an ideology that in, in, a, in a world in which the white man continues to be hegemonic and dominant, and all the so-called first world is largely white. And so we live in a highly racialized world. We live in a world in which the vast majority of those who are, you know, just, just before we talked, I was reading an article about people who just perished in the Mediterranean as they were trying to reach Italy. And of course, they're yes. all, all the people that perished were Muslim and dark-skinned. Yep. So it is always the dark-skinned people who are suffering in our world and the, the white-skinned people like in the Ukraine disaster, yep. they're taken care of. The white man rushes to take care of the white man. Absolutely. And if you learn about our even our current immigration laws, even under the Biden administration, the clear biases in favor of white people and yep. clear biases against anyone who's not white. But yet you have this, 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 this ideology 
that tells you to ignore our racialized world, to ignore the inequities in the world, to ignore the fact that the vast majority of wealth is controlled by a handful of families in this world, to ignore the fact that 32 nations face the real threat of famine in 2023. All 32 nations are dark-skinned people, all of them. And to ignore the fact that the white man is is destroying the environment and the people who are going to pay the bill for the destruction of the environment, again, are not the white people, but people that live in Africa and people that live in Asia. You could go on, why? And you ask why. Well, you know, because the right wing has more conservative sexual morality. You don't understand that the conservative sexual morality of Victorian Britain, for instance, brutalized native cultures more than any. I mean, the, the fact that they that they had more conservative Christian values didn't didn't help Muslims at all. In fact, their religious righteousness allowed them to target Muslims and to subjugate Muslims and feel right about it and feel morally righteous about it. And we have the same situation. I mean, Donald, Donald Tribe uh, with all his own sexual promiscuity, and yet just because he says things that a lot of Muslims like about homosexuality or about the the value of religion, and by religion he always means the Christian religion or or the Judeo Christian tradition, and he and he explicitly excludes Islam. And yet there is something truly wrong in the intellect and moral. I, I think it's a lack of education and lack of moral anchoring that we, we don't focus on ethics and morality in our... Because despite all of that, despite the fact that the right wing explicitly excludes Muslims from any of the worldview that they, that they possibly perceive in terms of rights and, and dignities and entitlements and so on, Despite the fact that they explicitly say we only care about Israel in in the Middle East, despite the fact that effectively we are they they embrace natural politics that we are all all Muslims are as if dead bodies and their policies we we still can sit there and and feel happy because uh, what's his name James Peterson or whatever Peterson. You know who I'm talking about, Yes, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. You know, I I just was looking at an article about uh, Netanyahu and and his meeting with Jordan Peterson and how all the the, the love fair that went between Netanyahu and and Jordan Peterson. And yet you have Muslims that somehow don't understand that someone like Jordan Peterson, regardless of how much lip service he gave you, gives you, yes. like what the British, the lip service that the, the British paid the Saudis, his entire project, his entire intellectual and ideological project is one in which Muslims are subjugated, dominated, erased, deconstructed, yes. marginalized, and, and yet just because he gives you a bit, a bit of lip service, like, yes. again, the history of British colonialism and French colonialism, where they will praise Islam like Napoleon did when he invaded Egypt. What did yes. Napoleon say? He pretended to praise Islam. He even 
I respect your Quran and I honor your prophet, but now let me subjugate you and colonize mm-hmm. you and deconstruct you as a human beings. And yet we've learned nothing. I mean, it, it, it's how do you educate such an uneducated bunch? And this is what happens, Sheikh. And this is what really upsets me because someone like Jordan Peterson, they say he's like, you know, they kind of promote him as the final bulwark against the moral degeneracy of modernity. And what confuses me when they say modernity, read feminism and LGBT. Modernity right. never take in consideration capitalism. They never can take consideration race, for example. It's right. just Racism, these two. Right? Yes, yeah, just these two issues, and I can't take that seriously because for them, modernity is oh the the reason why the world is in in the mess it is today is because there is an imbalance of the natural order of things and natural order of things is a hierarchy of of men on top and women on the bottom, and that's what has been pushed as modernity. But that does lead me to the next question, the all contentious issue when it comes to Islam and the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. And they use the prophet, the story of Lut. And I've watched your videos and it's been really helpful. But I guess for this audience, I know it's it's a very complex topic, so I don't expect us to go into too much depth. But what is your view and what is the story of Lut referring to? First, the the you know the the story of Lut it's subject to interpretation, and here here's why. On yes, we can understand the story as basically referring to people who practice sodomy, mm-hmm. but it is. But if you look into it, look more carefully and more deeply into the whole narrative, these people they are described in the Quran as as people who were immoral at at every level. They did not honor guests. They, in fact, made it a point that whoever, whichever foreigner falls within, they can get their hands on, that they would sexually assault, which is, by by the way, by the Near Eastern uh, cultural standards at the time, the idea that you anyone that comes as a guest or anyone that comes seeking your hospitality, that you would sexually assault them, was as outrageous, more as morally repugnant as you can get within the, the cultural values of many Near Eastern cultures. That They were also, one of the things that is rather interesting about them is that they seem to, I mean, when you think of something like homosexuality, what percentage of the population get is actually homosexual. But these people seem to make it a point to, it's not that the percentage of the population was was homosexual. They were, all of them, made it a point to sodomize the alien to the, or the foreigner to their culture, which if you, so in other words, they had an ethic of aggression, an ethic of transgression, they did not respect people. They did not honor people. They are constantly described as people who were haughty and arrogant and with very little regard to, the, to anyone outside their own society. So it is not to, to reduce the problem of the people of Lut to, oh, well, they, they were homosexuals. Well, what does that mean? I mean, were the, these are people that made it a point not a percentage that's homosexual, in other words, acting upon something within their nature, 
but everyone in that society made it a point to violate the other. It's like there is a difference between there's a difference between homosexuality and sodomy as a form of uh, degrading and subjugating the other. So in a lot of sexual assault cases, uh, you find that the offender makes it a point to sodomize their victim. And in every case, when you get into the psychology of the offender, it is not that they're, they sodomize the victim because they're homosexual. No, they sodomize the victim to degrade the victim, to tell the victim, see, I, ha- I am subjugating you thoroughly and completely. I am violating every privacy you have. And when you approach the story of loot from that morally critical insight, then it cannot be simply reduced to an issue of homosexuality. There is much more yeah, involved here. These are affirmatively, I mean, even look at the, they tell, they go tell loot, haven't we forbidden you from receiving any visitors? Well, now that you have visitors, we must violate them. Mm-hmm. That's not an issue of homosexuality. Exactly. That's an issue of people who are criminals. I mean, absolutely. absolutely. And the same way that the Quran condemns uh, those who are highway robbers and who victimize the defenseless. And as Muslim scholars would say in Adam al-Ghawth, that those who are truly mm-hmm. defenseless. And the Quran ha- is, is extremely resolute in saying that this is corruption on the earth and that these are people that you know must be punished very severely. And that reminds me a lot of what the... Def- people of loot were doing they they yes everything tells us that they're 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 victimizing the defenseless and degrading and humiliating the other and so it, it, no the story of loot doesn't provide an answer as to the the whole issue of homosexuality it, it's and it is i think quite disingenuous when we mm-hmm. simply try to tell the story as if it is just about homosexuality. It's not. So then, um, thank you so much for the answer. So in your role as a teacher, as a guide for young people who identify as homosexuals, and I'm sure many of them listen to this as well, what is your advice to these, to those young people? You know, this is, I, I have to tell you, one of the things that I have, you know, as, as I said, a, an ethical human being has to be ethically alive. And being Mm -hmm. ethically alive meaning that you have to take seriously ethical challenges and ethical questions of your day and age. Mm -hmm. And I grew up learning what I was always taught is that homosexuals have a, they're, they're ill and that they should be treated. And if they're treated, they'll be fine. Now, my I could have stopped there and I could have just accepted what I was taught as canon and as uh, sacred wisdom. And But I would be betraying my obligations to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to just simply re- rely on knowledge that I consider in- inimpeachable. And it is my obligation as a Muslim to read and to study and to interview and to talk and I I don't understand homosexual feelings because I'm not a homosexual. I don't understand how it feels for a man not to desire a woman and only or a woman to only desire your own 
sex. But what I, the time I invested in studying this issue has made me seriously question the notion that people can be treated of their homosexuality. And if so, if that homosexuals are homosexuals because God created them this way, then I, then I cannot simply condemn them. I cannot. It, it, it would be immoral of me. And so experience has showed me that there are people who do not desire, men who do not desire women of moral character that I look up to and admire. They are, it doesn't, your, your sexual inclinations and, and orientation doesn't define your, your ability to be either close to God or to be an ethical human being. And so I think it is imperative for anyone who dares call themselves an Islamic scholar or jurist to restudy and reconsider this issue and to especially reconsider the right of a human being for uh, companionship, that, uh, that when Allah describes a partner as a second, I, I'm not interested in giving license for people to be sexually promiscuous. That's not at all my concern, because I know that part of what Allah expects us to do is to discipline our sexual urges and to only expend them in what is in, in morally appropriate and correct ways. But what does concern me is to tell a human being that a lot of homosexuals come and say, well, should I just marry a woman? I say that then you would be committing an injustice unless a woman knows you're homosexual and, and she's willing to live with that. But to take a woman and render her a mu'allaqa, effectively someone who's just hanging, you're neither satisfying her desires nor really providing companionship because you don't feel you could provide compassion, that's unfair. So then if if you're saying to them, don't marry someone from the opposite sex, there has to, we have to think about what the alternative is. And I am open to serious moral discussions in light of the ethical principles that we are taught in the Quran to provide original ad- moral advancement on this issue. But to simply be dismissive and to say, oh, we, we, you know, I celebrate those who just condemn. If you embrace those who so easily condemn entire segments of human beings, remember that you can in turn become among the condemned by people who are morally dismissive of the other. That as you treat others, you will be treated and things will come around and you will receive of the same treatment that you've dealt others. That's what I always, I had to go through a great deal of education about this issue. And I'm continuing to educate myself about this issue. And I don't, and, and the people who educate me are the people who are, who experience the challenge. In other words, I go to people who are the subject of the study, in other words, people who are in fact homosexual, and I ask them and I talk to them. I, I don't sit you know, in my moral high chair and just condemn people at a distance because that is un-Islamic. That is immoral. And if it's immoral, it's un-Islamic. Thank you so much. Now, honestly, that's been 
a breath of fresh air to hear for so many what is out there today, the moral panic around this issue and people failing to reconcile or struggling to reconcile their want into belief in a just and a just God with their feelings. So I'm sure many people will find um, solace in that answer. So then moving on then, we spoke about these issues, spoke about the moral panic, we're speaking about issues of modernity. Many women, Muslim, have found certain strands of feminism. And again, this is, we were speaking about knowledge and epistemology. It makes me cringe when I hear Muslims say, but feminism is kufar, or this is kufar, because immediately I think to myself, well, I know that not all feminism is the same. I know that not all epistemologies and not all approaches to gender issues are the same. Even Marxism has different different schools or Pan-Africanism and these things. So what do you say to those people who, A, say that, oh, you cannot identify as a feminist or Marxist because you are a kafir, (laughs) you are a disbeliever? Or Mm. what do you say to those Muslims as well who said, you know what, of course my ethical injunction comes from the Quran and my belief in God. However, I have found this critique of gender or this imagining of gender relations or this understanding of capitalism to be pertinent, to be important, to be helpful in my analysis and understanding of the world. Again, the education deficiency is truly frightening among Muslims. I mean, for generations, Muslim parents have been directing their kids to become doctors and engineers, and and we are really feeling the effect of that now. Absolutely. Um, Because, you know, it's like the same thing about, I gave a, I was invited to a very well-known Islamic venue a couple of years ago, and and I gave a talk, and the 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 people who are sponsored were happy with the talk until in the Q and A, people started raising issues of race and critical race studies. And just because of the response I gave, my whole talk was excluded from publication, and I was never invited again. And the problem is always I always encounter the same problem: is that those people who are condemning critical race studies have actually not read much at all in the field. I mean, even if, if they read anything, they've read some, you know, and same thing was, was feminism, same thing was Marxism. These are labels for various points of emphasis. So when, so let's, I mean, feminism, for instance, I mean, feminism can range from, those who want to abolish marriage altogether because they see it as an oppressive institution to people who say we've lived in a patriarchal world and it is time that we challenge patriarchy. Now, can anyone really deny that we've lived in a patriarchal world? I mean, does anyone find real support in the Quran through the propositions that somehow men are biologically superior meaning by, by, by their very physiology, intellectually superior to women. Well, if you make that claim, then empiricism is the biggest challenge to that. And part of elementary principles of usul al-fiqh is whatever is challenged by reality must be, must demands a re-articulation or reconsideration of the law. So, mm-hmm. you know, if whatever empirical facts exist, so we empirically know, that women are not inferior intellectually to women, and and to to, to women are not inf- inf- intellectually inferior to men. 
And we also know that all the stuff that men say about women and their menstrual cycle and their psychology and is hardwash. We, we know that if you actually get an education and actually study, you will realize that it's this is all the just old tales and have no be. And life has shown us that some of the best leaders in the world, some of the, the leaders who truly served their nations well were women. And so we go back to the ethics of the Quran. And as I, in my commentary on Surat Maryam, the Maryam defied the patriarchy of the temple. Maryam, she was told, because you're not a, you're not a man, you cannot worship at the temple and you cannot become part of the rabbinic class. And she defied them before the birth of Jesus, and after the birth of Jesus. And Surat Maryam itself, and the entire Quran, and again, I've, you know, in my commentary, I I go through that micro detail. The entire Quran in Surat Al-Mujadala, again, shows you that Allah seconds, blesses, approves of a woman who stands up and demands her rights. And as a result, when you look at an encyclopedic bibliography of women in Islam, like the one published by a Nadawi, this 35-volume, you find that half of this encyclopedia were women at the time of the Prophet, that the Quranic phenomena and the prophetic phenomena empowered women to stand up and to defy the traditional roles of patriarchy. Now, you could call that feminism, depending on how your definition of feminism is, in some ways what what the role played by various women, from the woman who questioned Omar ibn Khattab to the woman who went to the Prophet ﷺ to complain to the women who insisted on divorcing her. I mean, we can go on and on and on and give tons of examples. If you read in feminist theory, you would realize that depending on your theoretical approach and your theoretical commitment, this actually could count as feminism. If the point is, the, the crux of the matter is defying injustice. Is patriarchy unjust? in many, 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 many situations? The answer has to be absolutely yes. You have to be truly a pig-headed idiot to deny that patriarchy leads to an enormous amount of injustice. Does it oppress women and deny women their right to self-determination and their right to, to, uh, to dignity, their right to identity, their right to thought, their right to an education? And the answer has to be absolutely yes. Do many women suffer injustices because men don't understand their feelings and don't and often ignore their aspirations and their dreams and their commitments, the right to be a true abd, I mean, I don't like the word slave, but abd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and same thing, I mean, same thing with critical race studies. Same thing with Marxism. I mean, mm-hmm. Marxism, there are those Marxists who are so committed to, you know, basically a dictatorship of the proletariat. And then there are those Marxists who completely do not accept the idea of a dictatorship of the proletariat as, as in communism. And really what Marxism for them is a critique 
of class power dynamics. Exactly. And that basically saying that there is a very inequitable distribution of wealth and that those who have consistently treat the have-nots in ways that are oppressive and unjust. Exactly. So only the ignorant, it's like with the with good students, you find always a good student is not very concerned about the, the labels, but is interested in the nuance of ideas. Absolutely. And, and the bad student can never get beyond the labels. They, they, they always need shortcuts because they're too intellectually lazy. So they need the labels as shortcuts. So I can label this, that, so I don't have to think very hard about it. I can label this, that, so I don't have to think very hard about it. A Muslim who's intellect, I, I wish Muslims understood that the reason that the Quran sparked an entire civilization is that it forced people out of their moral and intellectual laziness. It got them to reflect seriously about the world they live in and to ask very hard questions. And sometimes doing so led to mis- missteps. It led to a lot of civil wars. It led to a lot of rebellions. It led to, you know, some of the rebellions, actually the rebel was on the the good guy and those who destroyed the rebellion were actually the bad guys. But that was the price that had to be paid to teach people to take ownership of their moral worth and their intellectual worth. And this is precisely why when Muslims discovered the Greek tradition, they ate it up. They translated texts from all languages. And that is why the the very famous library of Baghdad that was destroyed by the Mongols was described in such luminary terms. This is all a Quranic phenomena. It's not an accident. This is the morality that was parked in them in the Quran. Muslims today are completely disconnected from the Quran. Muslims today celebrate someone who can recite the Quran and not understand a single word of it. And they'll, they'll be sitting there, oh, alhamdulillah, subhanallah, mashallah, oh, wonderful. Is, 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 this, is this the way you teach God's speech? If, if I speak and my son doesn't pay attention to what I'm saying and just says, oh, my father is speaking, mashallah, and doesn't pay to listen to anything I say, I get offended. I get hurt. How about God? What, what, right? I mean, can you imagine what we owe God in, when God speaks in our midst? Honestly. And when I did this, uh, you know, you know how academia is. And I knew, for instance, that when I would sit and do the, the, the khutab, the, the sermons, and sit and do the, the tafsir of the Quran, I knew that academic, in terms of academia, all my fellow Muslim academics who are into, you know, their whole life is getting published at Cambridge or Oxford or whatever, uh, will look at it, uh, look down at it and say, what is this? You, you know, are you a mullah now? You're an imam? But at the same time, Muslims, uh, I can't tell you how many Muslims couldn't understand why are you taking two years of your life to go through the Quran? You know, shouldn't we just open a tafsir? And that is exactly wow. why we are in the Masquerade. I, I truly believe that. We, as a Muslim, as Muslims, take the Quran out of our life and we end up being just our ethnic identities. Honestly. And all too often, that ethnic identity seems to supersede everything else. And it becomes the lens by which we view 
the whole world. So Perfect. thank you so much. And finally, because um, of the time, tell me about the Prophet's Pulpit. How did it come about and what was his objectives? I mean, you know, I, I have to tell you, I am extremely grateful, extremely grateful to the editor of The Prophet's Prophet, Joe, and uh, my wife, Grace, because they they were so committed to taking the sermons that I gave and, you know, the wonderful, wonderful editing of Joe, uh, the brilliant editing of Joe of these khutab. And the whole point is that the whole idea of khutbat al-Jum'ah was for the community to get together and to hear an imam, what was supposed to be sort of the elected or or agreed upon leader of the community, share the concerns of the ummah, the concerns of the community. You know, here is what's going on and here is what the, the, uh, here's how we should try to think about how we deal with the various problems in light of our commitment to Allah. But the khutbah, all over the Muslim world has become something horrendously different. I mean, people, me included, we would attend the khutbah and you would fall asleep and you would just like, when is it going to be over? I've heard everything that these people are saying. So when I started giving khutbahs, I I really wanted to give an example of how the khutbah can become live and vibrant and relevant and interesting and passionate and Joe and, and Grace, especially Joe, they said these, these khutbahs have to live on and they, they, we want to go through and edit so that they can become a red text that lives, lives on. And, and, I'm, and I'm very grateful to them for doing that. Thank you so much. We've reached the end of the episode, but honestly, people, I am asking all the listeners... If you support this podcast, <laughs> please support the work of Sheikh Khaled Abu al-Fadl. I will post links to their recent GoFundMe. Honestly, this engagement of the Quran, this engagement of presenting Islam in this way is something that we need to really get behind. So this is my plea and I hope others will follow as well. And Sheikh, all I can say is thank you so much. You. May Allah thank continue so to place barakah in all that you do. Allahumma ameen. And I can't wait to finally visit you in person soon, inshallah. Inshallah, may Allah Take bless care. you and strengthen you. Ameen, ameen.